Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio spoke with Pulitzer Prize winner Frances Fitzgerald about American evangelists, heard from a challenger for the House of Representatives, and talked with striking workers in England. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for March 9, 2018. Hitting Left spoke with Maureen Newman, the Democratic primary challenger for Illinois' 3rd District. Newman spoke about her campaign against incumbent Dan Lipinski, discussed what progressive values look like to her, and talked about her district's embrace of Bernie Sanders. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Maureen Newman, uh, give us a little background on yourself. Sure. Uh, how, how did you end up here walking into the lion's den in Bridgeport? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know... Uh, Taking on, taking on this uh, this guy, Lipinski. Yeah, thank you for the invitation today. So my background is a combination. I started out in the marketing and advertising business and uh, worked my way to management. And then I opened my own small business, a uh, small sole proprietorship uh, consulting services. Um, during that time, my uh, one of my children was uh, traumatically bullied. And uh, it turned out that it was a a fairly uh, significant problem, epidemic, if you will, in the town that I lived in at the time. We put together an anti-bullying system with a large group of parents. I I organized. First time I really When you say bullying, what what do you mean exactly by bullying? That he was— Because that word changed since I was a kid. Yeah. So it was everything from being physically hurt to being taunted every moment of every day he walked in the door at school. Every day. And it was to the point where, um, you know, he needed therapy and a little bit of hospitalization and a bunch of things. So it was a, it was very significant. So then it turned out that it was a problem in the entire school system. Um, so I took it on from the standpoint, let's turn this on its head and organized uh, many families together. And we developed an anti-bullying system for the school and from there um, worked on a state task force um, that worked on a best practices system for bullying. Um, in Illinois. And then I wrote a book and Sears called me and said, hey, do you want to team up and uh, develop a national nonprofit program called Team Up to Stop Bullying? We did. Uh, we made headway there. I sat on the White House Summit on Bullying for two years um, and helped uh, with legislative policy that ended up being the executive order that President Obama put together. It's knock on wood, one of the ones and that's still what was in place. It, what, what was included in that? I mean, like what changes that the, were required, you advocating? Yeah. It required every school system, every single school system to have an anti-bullying system and not just a, a, a sentence in a, in a uh, handbook. It had to be you had process and procedures and infrastructure into your anti-bullying system. And then Governor Quinn in, I think it was 11, when I was still working on this, actually put added an amendment to the law that identified that you must document and have a procedure for consequences, et cetera, after bullying is identified. So he actually did a great thing at the state level as well. Um, And we've had good, now up until Trump was elected, we had a 15% decrease in bullying over about a five-year period. So that's very significant in the nation. Unfortunately, it has gone up again. And because we have the role model in chief for bullying uh, in the White House now. So um, after worked on bullying, I got off the sidelines again with uh, Moms Demand Action, worked as a uh, senior volunteer to be the spokesperson for Moms Demand Action Illinois. So I worked on the legislative side with policy, um, state, federal, and local level, as well as being their spokesperson um, and have been an advocate for LGBTQ rights uh, for probably 20 years. And uh, what... um have you been involved at all in the latest uh, round of struggles around uh, uh, 
gun control and yeah yeah I have so I keep in close touch with Moms Demand Action for obvious reasons and um, as I always like to say I don't have to equivocate on anything I know what I want and what the district um, has told me that they want the district wants um, to protect our police officers and the way that we do that is we get semi-automatic weapons off the streets and so uh, let's start there with a, with a ban on semi-automatic weapons or the assault ban uh, let's get universal background checks. Over 90% of the nation wants universal background checks and have a standardized database so that we can keep guns out of uh, those with severe mental illness, uh, domestic abusers, and criminals. Um, and then I, I personally believe that um, folks should be licensed to um, have and own a gun. I am all for responsible gun owners owning a gun. I have no issue with the Second Amendment. But if you need a license to drive a car, you need a license to shoot a gun. Simple. Well, uh, even with a license... Uh, uh, do you see any need for people to own uh, assault no. weapons? No. Uh, that's why I'm for the ban, because you and I, none, none other than law enforcement and military, nobody needs an assault weapon or an automatic weapon or a um, semi-automatic Or a weapon. nuke, probably. Yeah. No, not good. <laughs> I wouldn't, I would, I'm with you on that. <laughs> no family-owned nukes? Yeah, no. <laughs> well, this is a, Chicago is a nuclear-free zone. Did you know that? I did not know yes, that. Yes, it, it's true. That's so good. Yeah. Uh, I'm so happy to hear that. Well, you know, it was interesting uh, – uh, uh, Trump says uh, that gun-free zones are uh, kind of roll out the red carpet for uh, mass shooters. Wait, did he say that in the uh, before after? Like he changes his views on this now every. But on this, he, on this, he's still solid. Oh, okay. He's still solid. He says if you have a gun-free zone, uh, mass shooters are going to love that because they'll know when they come in and shoot up the place. Uh, there's not going to be anybody with guns to resist them. Yeah. Well, this is this whole nonsense around. A couple of issues. One is that um, having a good guy with a gun um, against a bad guy with a gun never works. It's like, and it's statistically studied. So we 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 don't even have to have that discussion because it's nonsense. Um, the the other piece to that is is that. Um, Having more guns is not the answer. When we have more guns in situations, more people get shot. So this is, again, not taking guns away from responsible gun owners. It is preventing gun ownership to people that shouldn't have them. And by the way, it's not just mass shootings that are the problem. Right here in our district in back of the yards, which Mr. Lipinski has never foot, set foot in, just so you know. Never set foot in the back of the yards in my district. And they have a very significant gun violence problem right here, as, as many. There's a well, few the whole city there. does. Yeah. Uh, and even if, you ha even if you had a local ban on guns, gun sales, which we do, mm -hmm. uh, it's just a 10-minute ride to, to uh, Indiana. Indiana. and you Or can... to Wisconsin. It's an hour to Wisconsin. But, uh, and it's also important that people – that uh, um, there is kind of like the, this uh, – um, Sense that the that the problem is, and it's a problem about mass mass school shootings. Yeah. But four thousand children every year yeah. under the age of eighteen are killed uh, intentionally. Yeah, these aren't accidental yeah. shootings, but are right. killed intentionally by uh, yeah. in gun by gun violence. Right. So this isn't just uh, every couple, you know, every couple weeks, and we no, see it, is, which is shocking uh, enough as it is. These uh, are hotspots throughout the nation, and by the way, it's not just urban areas that have uh, gun right. violence issues. It is in uh, suburban and uh, rural areas as well. This uh, is uh, an epidemic. Well, I'm, you know, I'm an educational researcher by yep. trade, you know, um, and I did a little research on this mass shooting idea. You know, once once I heard Trump say uh, that a, that a gun free zone. Is a like a welcoming mat for mass shooters. I look. I did the research. There's never been a mass shooting in a gun-free zone. Yeah. So uh, it makes it. Florida has more guns um, everywhere than almost any other state. 
it's Texas, Arizona, and a few others. So the the reality is is that this isn't about gun free, not gun free. It is That's about right. that we have. Um, assault weapons and uh, semi-automatic weapons on the streets, and people are getting access to them. And we need uh, we need national uh, gun control, reasonable national gun control laws, Common not sense. just local. Yeah. Because, like I said, you can go anywhere oh, and buy yeah. a gun. This we actually in in the state of Illinois, we have actually fairly stringent uh, gun laws. The yeah. problem is is that Pence put together this package in Indiana where you can get a gun anywhere, anytime. If you're seven, you can get a gun. You can go to a gun show and get a gun. You can get it in the back of a van. So they put the guns in their cars, come to here, and you know drive up to a parking lot and sell them. You know, I I just returned recently from I was I was down in Florida and I mm-hmm. was in Parkland and I went to uh, uh, Stoneman Douglas high school and mm-hmm. talked to some of the students there. Uh, and then I heard uh, the Democratic Party leadership come out with their proposal, which is raise the limit for purchasing, raise the age limit for purchasing assault weapons from 18 to 21. And I said, oh, my God, that's that's just going to breed cynicism on the part of these kids at yeah. a time wow. with the 2018 elections yeah. coming up and a chance to get a whole younger generation active in, right. in the elections and the uh, hopefully have them help sweep uh, Democrats back into office. And I said, what? Uh, we certainly can come up with a better, oh, that's, better demand and I, than that. I, so here, I I understand the strategy that uh, it's a game of inches, but we can have many more inches than just raising the limit of age. So. I mean, many more inches. Let's let's go back. We have we can dust off the assault ban. We can uh, develop a um, semi-automatic uh, weapon ban. This is a, what this is: is that um, it never. So a year and a half ago, we had a great opportunity. If you remember this, we had this, the Democratic sit-in in the House. And by the way, Lipinski did not show up. He's the only Democrat that didn't show up and sit in, just to be clear. Um, so um, we had a great opportunity because we had a we had a well-crafted, uh, pretty well-agreed-upon piece of legislation around universal background checks. Paul Ryan refused, blatantly refused to bring that to the floor because he's received millions. And when I say millions, to the tune of $4 million, um, from the NRA. So why would he bring it to the floor? He well, I, I, you know, I want to be uh, – I want to be – clear in terms of where I'm coming from on this, uh, and uh, Fred, j- jump in here if you think I'm being, you know, going overboard <laughs> on this, yeah. but but I think the <laughs> Democrats had a good chance to to do that too and back in the, Obama's first term. Mm-hmm. And our mayor, in fact, uh, was chief, Obama's chief of staff, and right. I think he personally killed the attempt by uh, our attorney general to get some decent gun control yeah. legislation on the floor. Uh, I won't use the language that he used, but he told basically told uh, the attorney general uh, to watch the language to doing. shut up, <laughs> shut the something up. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, he thought that the, you know he was afraid of uh, of uh, I guess going against the NRA on this yeah. stuff. You know, and I think that that fear is lessening over time. Um, I think there are more Democrats that are um, more outspoken on this topic, and even some Republicans I think are starting to see the light of day on this. When your entire constituency wants something, 97% of uh, folks, according to that Quinnipiac role, would be uh, happy with the universal, uh, universal background checks. Things are not always what they seem. Texting Chicago spoke to Kara Kennedy of Lumity. 
Kennedy discussed STEM education in Chicago schools, how science and tech education can help lift children out of poverty, and what Chicago's tech leaders are doing to help our schools. The award-nominated Tech Scene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our first guest today on our show is Kara Kennedy, Executive Director of Lumity, and she's here today to tell us about Lumity's mission and their upcoming events. Uh, Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Melanie. I'm excited to be with you today. Where today are the public school systems failing when it comes to career readiness? Well, like I said a minute ago, you know, teachers are taught to teach mm-hmm. and they haven't been out in all of these workplace settings to see how what they're teaching is really applied. And mm-hmm. I think that's one area where educators, you know, can't do everything. They can't be everything. And that's where our education system is really based on a model that existed 128 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think things have changed a little since then, mm-hmm. but our education system for the majority of students haven't. And so I think that the whole idea of bringing organizations like Lumity, bringing specific programs and bringing the corporate community mm-hmm. into the schools and getting the students out into workplaces really are going to help raise awareness about what are career options. Mm -hmm. So to me, our whole education system needs to be restructured, but it's like moving a battleship around. And Mm so in the meantime, at least we can experiment with these different approaches and models Mm -hmm. in order to help inform the decision makers about where can they make those tweaks to have more success in getting keeping kids engaged so they want to stay in school Mm -hmm. and complete and then see what's their next path to give them the skills and the knowledge they need to have what we call lifelong sustainable careers, which is so critical for Mm -hmm. our students today. Exactly. And and what, what are some of the biggest concerns that parents have about their kids' futures in education when it comes to technology related topics? 90% of parents actually want their students to get computer science training. Mm -hmm. Only 40% of schools are offering some type of course in computer science. Mm -hmm. So right there is a mismatch. Mm -hmm. But I would say there still are a lot of mistaken beliefs about technology careers. People have this image of someone sitting in this dark corner back and drinking Mountain Dew and coffee and just being in front of a computer all day. And that's what they think technology careers are. Mm-hmm. And we all know that that's not the case anymore. And that's so right. it's it's really important to not only get the students out, but to also raise the awareness of parents mm-hmm. about what these STEM careers are and how they are a pathway to their children having a full life mm-hmm. and having the resources to be able to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. And when, when you're working with underserved communities, uh, one of the best ways to lift them out of poverty is to help kids get jobs that pay enough to sustain a higher quality of life. Now, it, tell us how the tech industry is and can be a part, part of this solution. I have to compliment the Chicago corporate community because they have really stepped up in a big way. And I would say, you know, of course, I'm a nonprofit, so money is always the first thing we talk about. But we are seeing more and more companies making donations and supporting programs like Lumity's Mm -hmm. to help support students with STEM education. But I would say just as equally important is engaging their employees. Mm -hmm. There is what I call the magic sauce when you bring students 
and small teams together to work on a problem and pair them up with STEM professionals who are sitting literally elbow to elbow with them and supporting them, not telling them what to do, but actually asking questions and coaching and just helping them see what they're not seeing. Mm-hmm. The magic happens because that's when the kids are really engaged. You see them focus, and then you see them gain the confidence once they've had successes, and they see that these really important people are spending all this time with them, and they're affirming their ideas and valuing what they're bringing to the table. So mm-hmm. you get two major things when you get the employees to come out. You get the the kids knowing that they matter, mm-hmm. and two, that they gain the confidence. And if you don't have those two things in place with any student, the rest is not going to make a difference. You have mm-hmm. to. Those are fundamental. So those employees are so critical to moving that needle for how many of these kids are going to choose this path and be the next leaders that we need. Mm. Uh, wonderful um, and, uh, and good good to hear and, and good also good to hear that the Chicago corporate community is stepping up uh, good good for them and good good for our city that is great um, and now how, how many high schools in Chicago that I mean you may not have done an analysis on the whole public school system or anything but but uh, what's who has a good stem education program what's going on with that well, it's interesting because there are the six early college STEM schools that mm-hmm. Mayor Emanuel created, I think it's been about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And so those are kind of like held up as the pillar for where we've invested a lot. And those programs you know, have continued to iterate and really improve what they're providing for those students. There's also other STEM schools that are out there. But I'll be honest, some of the schools that aren't labeled STEM are doing a great job as well. And so at the end of the day, it's the people that make the difference at these schools. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to label a school because Mm -hmm. once they get labeled, then they get labeled that way. And they may not always deserve to have that label because you can have a dynamic teacher who's really leading the the effort. And if they move and go somewhere else, Mm -hmm. then sometimes that isn't always maintained. Now, now tell us about you know, the, the racial and socioeconomic disparity in test results for, for kids when it comes to proficiency in, in subjects like science and math and things like that. Well, I'll just say that, first of all, there's just the disparity with access mm-hmm. to STEM education. And I would even focus that more specifically on computer science and technology. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different data points that show that students that are African-American and Hispanic Latino don't participate and don't even take mm-hmm. the exams, even when they're given the opportunity, that there's just a behavioral challenge that we're facing And I think a lot of it gets back to just a lot of distrust and disbelief and not knowing that, you know, these options really do exist for them. And so the way that we introduce opportunities, it takes a lot more effort and time to really raise the awareness about what the options are for the students. And we need to spend more time actually having them touch it, feel it, experience something, so that way they can opt in. Mm-hmm. And that is probably mm-hmm. one of the bigger lessons that we've learned. And I think we still have a lot of work to really be inviting mm-hmm. 
minority students to these mm-hmm. opportunities so that mm-hmm. way they feel more comfortable and safe and saying, yes, I opt in. I'll, I'll, I'll try this. Mm-hmm. And what? Uh, so tell us your thought a little bit more about what you think the solution is to some of these problems. So being inviting and having them opt in. What else? Um, what, what else have you thought about? And in, in, um, like as, as you tackle this, pro, you know, this problem from a standpoint of we're Lumity, we can do something. Mm-hmm. Well, what else is, are the solutions in your mind? Well, I'd say that, you know, our dream is that students actually get exposed to STEM concepts starting kindergarten through 12th grade and actually post, but I'm just focusing on those fundamental years. And right now, you have some schools, elementary schools that have some components, but then the middle schools might not and the Mm -hmm. high schools. So it's kind of like if you are in certain, if you're in the select school type of tier of students, you're getting access to that. But if you're going to a neighborhood school, you're not guaranteed that you're going to get that exposure K through 12. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's something that, you know, how do we go from where we are to, you know, there's a lot of resources that are needed to Mm -hmm. get into the schools. And there's a lot of free resources that exist. I mean, you've got code.org, STEM 101, Mm -hmm. Lumity, you've got a lot of options out there that that you can piecemeal together to create that pathway for mm-hmm. students' education mm-hmm. from K through 12. But, yeah. you know, there's just there's uh, too many gaps mm-hmm. where we lose it. And I would say that the other big piece that Lumity is focusing on right now, which is along with a lot of other organizations, are focusing on girls mm-hmm. and STEM. And there's a lot of groups that are focusing on getting girls interested in STEM. And the research that we've done is it's not about getting girls interested in STEM. It's about keeping them interested in STEM because mm-hmm. of a lot of negative messages that are gender-based biases mm-hmm. that a lot of parents and teachers don't believe that STEM is a good place for girls. Mm-hmm. And so that is a big challenge of, of recorrecting those misbeliefs about that and mm-hmm. supporting girls as they start getting into puberty and mm-hmm. their focus is changing. So that's where we're focusing is fifth through eighth grade and really supporting girls who do have an interest in a natural propensity for STEM mm-hmm. and helping them know how to navigate all of those challenges that they're going to face and preparing them proactively to do that. So that way, they're not like me when I was faced with some of those messages where I was just like surprised and stunned mm-hmm. and either froze or just withdrew. Mm-hmm. And we don't want our girls to feel like that's their only option. We want to empower them with the skills and the knowledge to be able to say, nope, this is what I want and I'm going for it. Dunn spoke to Luther Blissett, a member of a radical architectural union advocating militant action. Blissett, a pseudonym, spoke about the need for direct action in Tory-ruled England, how and why militant action can succeed, and lessons for unions worldwide. 
Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of each month at 2. We're uh, on the horn with Luther Blassett, um, who is on the picket line um, in the UK, beaming in from across the pond. Luther, how's it going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good afternoon to all your listeners out there in the States. Thanks, yeah, and uh, thanks for, for joining the show. Uh, this was uh, quite a feat of, co- <laughs> of coordination, and I'm glad we were able to make it work. Um, so, yeah, we heard that statement from architectural workers about the kind of general contours of what's happening. Um, but, yeah, like, if, if you could summarize it as well, what's going on? What are the latest updates? What's the feeling on the ground? Well, uh, England's very much in a state of flux at the moment, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, especially with Brexit. Um, Across the board, we're seeing attacks on pay and working conditions. Uh, And generally, you know, following the reign of Margaret Thatcher, we've faced 40 uh, 40 years of attacks on living standards, rising rents, um, declining standards of living. Uh, And frankly, people have had enough, which is why you're seeing this sort of groundswell of unionisation activity. Um, Within the universities where I'm currently based, I'm currently at the University of Cambridge, uh, there are over 61 universities participating in the biggest strike in the history of British higher education. Uh, And this is because the university managers, they've got together and they're trying to cut the pensions of uh, university workers by up to 40%. And obviously that's precipitated a very strong reaction uh, up and down the country. Yeah. So, um, and and I, I'm thinking too of the uh, the uh, West Virginia teachers who are on on strike here in the states, um, um, an illegal strike. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of amazing what's what's happening in the world right now. Um, and the kind of strike, is, the strike is making a comeback, which is um, at least from my vantage point, really good to see. Um, and so, uh, explain what's going on. Is so the, so the the t- the teachers, the faculty are on strike, and um, it seems like architecture students are. Um, kind of fully supporting sympathy strikes um is that is that right yeah so at the university of cambridge architect students have been particularly strong uh in supporting strikes there's been a general consensus not to cross picket lines to stay out of uh school uh, and support the strike as in as many ways as possible really through publicity stunts through banner drops and also through a program of direct action and I think really students are starting to realise that precarity in education is just giving way to precarity in employment. So for architects who are often on zero-hour contracts, who are often working lots of unpaid overtime, who are often you know, quite ruthlessly exploited, we're now going to education systems where we're paying £9,000 a year. So we're paying to learn how to work and really in jobs that no longer pay. So we're increasingly drawing the links between workplace conditions in the university where they say to our, to our lecturers that their pension should be cut that they too should have precarious contracts, that they too should have poverty wages, and realising that this is the future that's in store for us. And frankly, it's a future that we don't want, which is why I think you're seeing this increasingly strong response from students around the country to say that actually we're going to stand up and fight for our rights here because we've seen what happens when we don't. And that's been the last 40 years in Britain, which is really starting to reach a boiling point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious because uh, how how this was kind of organized, especially the support from architectural students, because I, I think um, um, everyone everyone kind of feel, feels in the air that there's there's, a, there's just a lot less to, to lose. Um, so I'm wondering, was it something that uh, there were kind of existing activist networks that were kind of um, activated or had experience organizing something like this? Um, is it that uh, it was a kind of spontaneous um, um, 
upheaval in in a heated moment. Um, um, how did this come about? Um, and you know, I understand that there's maybe some some sensitivities about talking about what is an active picket line. Um, but as as much as you can say that will help uh, uh, folks here um, be able to conceptualize and realize their own kind of agency and and doing something similar. Well, I think um, it's a little bit of everything, uh, but predominantly spontaneity. Uh, so in, as your listeners may be aware, in 2010, they trebled the tuition fees from £3,000 to £9,000. Um, and there were huge riots in the United Kingdom, really huge riots. And many universities were occupied. Um, there were very heated battles between police and student protesters um, in which, you know, there's the horrific acts of police violence that students very bravely fought their way through. Um, there's a real legacy from that, which has been that there's been over eight years of organisation on campuses. There's been programmes of rent strikes, which have taken millions of pounds in compensation from universities. There's been forceful anti-police movements, um, such as the Cops Off Campus mobilization in 2013. There's been very forceful anti-privatization um, movements and also increasing unionization activity around things yeah. such as the Senate House Cleaners Struggle, the SOAS Cleaners Struggle, the LSE. These are all um, universities where there's been very big drives by unions to organize sort of cleaners and outsource work with very successful results. Yeah. So there is this legacy and sort of memory um, amongst people uh, of this sort of organization. And there are some people around who uh, participated in that and so remember very well. Uh, within the wider university as a whole, there are, of course, um, activists and organization groups. But within our Faculty of Architecture at Cambridge, the um, it's been far more spontaneous. So whilst there's people there with this experience, I think there's, there's several things coming together. There's a sense of a, a collective investment in what happens from this strike because we see that the future for our lectures is also our future for ourselves and that the changes being pushed through here will negatively impact us. Um, I think it's also the sense of growing precarity and employment um, and the need to really take a stand on that. And um, the sort of intersection, really, between that spontaneity and, you know, the classic bread and butter organizing tactics of faculty assemblies, uh, door knocking, leafleting, poster campaigns, you know, the very, very basic building blocks that start to bring disparate people together and start talking about really what are collective problems. Yeah, it's really inspiring to hear because I, I think that there are, there are some uh, analogs here in the States. You know, I think about um, the, the immense wave of graduate student organizing that's happening through United Auto Workers. And, you know, uh, in, in the architecture lobby, um, a, a lot of our most experienced and best organizers are able to bring that, that experience over from the kind of campus organizing as graduate students into um, other struggles. Um, but but it's really it's really inspiring to hear that all, all of this kind of stuff, uh, this activism, student activism, kind of gives way to um, uh, experiences that when when the need for spontaneity presents itself, people are well equipped to uh, to do that. Um, so you mentioned. Um, you mentioned that there's kind of uh, acts of publicity. Um, I, I saw a big red picket fence on, on mm -hmm. Instagram or something. <laughs> um, and so so has, has there been like a proper picket lines? Uh, I know from, from my experience, you know, walking a picket line is, is kind of um, a defining moment um, um, as a kind of activist. Uh, it really cements, cements your position. <laughs> so I imagine if, if there is a picket line that it's had a, a, a very radicalizing effect. Is that right? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's pretty strong picket lines all around the university, um, and of course, many, many uh, workers are all manning them and imploring students not to cross picket lines. Um, some students choose to cross them, and we have a word for them: it's scabs. Um, <laughs> but others uh, have been far more solid, and architecture has been particularly good in not crossing picket lines. And uh, we thought that, given central management at the university are sort of so responsible for this dispute, Cambridge plays a very unique role in this dispute, having lobbied for the changes uh, purely for its own financial benefit, which are the cause of the strikes. Uh, we thought we'd take the message a little stronger to Senate House by building a sort of four metre by four metre high picket fence, um, which, you know, has this great sort of history as the sort of symbol of capitalist property relations. You know, the white picket <laughs> sure. fence, I'm sure, is familiar to many of you in the States. And we thought, what better thing to do than to scale it up? You know, if they're putting up the barriers to our education, we will scale up the pickets, as we said. So we, um, we built a giant picket fence and chained it to their central access gates uh, very early in the morning. Um, and then posed for some photos and ran away. <laughs> and and turned it red, of course. Which, uh... I, I turned it red, of course. <laughs> Naturally. And so, yeah. Uh, so, what what is what are the next steps? Uh, sort of what what are what are the, I think um, you've painted a, a, a nice picture of the kind of the kind of broad demands that are driving um, um, people's act- activity and, and will to join the picket. Um, but what's what's kind of next in this specific struggle? Well, it's it's an interesting one because obviously within within universities, people have deadlines, and the pressure is really starting to mount after two weeks of strikes. So um, whether the momentum can be sustained for another two weeks is um, is going to be interesting. Though certainly this week there's negotiations happening between the union and management so we'll see what the outcomes of of those will be but i think the real legacy will be far more long term you know dozens and dozens of people that have never before participated in more militant or radical action have now got an experience of that uh, and they're almost certainly going to be looking at things like the architectural workers union as, as they move into employment so i think that alone i think will be a very interesting development uh, perhaps more immediately on march the 8th is the uh, global women's strike which is taking place in dozens and dozens of countries. Um, In Britain, there's an increasingly large mobilization happening where you've got workers from places like the IWGB, the picture house strikes, um, many precarious workers, many workers in fast food industries, all identifying with the aims of the women's strike, which is against um, gender inequality and the many forms it uh, manifests itself. And I think that's going to be a fairly interesting moment for um, UK labor disputes as we start moving away from Labour disputes purely is centred around the workplace and into a far more sort of conception of the social strike where we, we can withdraw our labour to have leverage over issues in society far greater than simple workplace struggles. And I think this is a very interesting moment um, for unionisation activity in Britain on that basis because it's, uh, you know, the trade union bug is in the air and it's certainly, uh, certainly not going away anytime soon, I think. <laughs> The Trump Diaries. Hicks is out after admitting she lied. Kushner's shaky investments begin to crumble. Tariffs come roaring back. A Belarusian sex worker says she knows about hacking the American election. And a former Trump aide says Robert Mueller has something on Donald Trump. But first, former Trump aide Sam Nunberg has been subpoenaed to appear in front of a federal grand jury. Nunberg is refusing to comply in highly public fashion, embarking on a whistle-stop tour of American media companies. In a statement to the Washington Post, Nunberg said, quote, Donald Trump won this election on his own. He campaigned his ass off, and there is no one who hates him more than me. He then added, let Mueller arrest me. 
Nunberg then went on MSNBC and said that he thought Mueller, quote, had something on Trump and, quote, may have done something illegal during the campaign. He continued his defiance on CNN saying, quote, I'm not cooperating with Robert Mueller. Sarah Huckabee Sanders addressed Nunberg's statement saying, quote, I definitely think he doesn't know that for sure because he's incorrect. He hasn't worked at the White House, so I can't speak to him or to the lack of knowledge he clearly has. Nunberg, now speaking on NY1, fired back. Quote, if Sarah Huckabee wants to start debasing me, she's a joke. She's a fat slob. Fine. But that's not relevant. The person she works for has a 30% approval rating, okay? Back then on MSNBC, he added, quote, Sarah should shut her mouth, adding for emphasis, I'm warning her to shut her mouth. Nunberg added his lawyer would likely fire him for speaking out publicly. A TV host then asked him if he was drunk. The next day, Nunberg said he would cooperate with Mueller. These are the Trump diaries. Day 406, March 1st. Hope Hicks suddenly resigned as White House Communications Director. Hicks was one of Trump's largest serving and most trusted advisors. Her resignation came one day after she testified for more than nine hours before the House Intelligence Committee, declining to answer many questions. During that testimony, she admitted lying for Trump. Her departure is apparently not connected to that testimony. And Trump, in a shock, embraced gun control measures rejected by Republicans for years. In a televised exchange, he called his own party to pass comprehensive gun control that would expand background checks, keep guns from the mentally ill, and restrict gun sales from some young adults. That is unlikely to progress in a Congress which no gun code measure has any Republican support. Dick Sporting Goods has immediately stopped all sales of assault rifles and announced it will no longer sell guns to people under the age of 21. The move came after the Florida school shootings. Dix is one of the nation's largest sporting retailers. And Trump criticized his own attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and called him disgraceful after Sessions said the Justice Department's watchdog would look into accusations of potential abuse of surveillance laws. Trump has been publicly urging justice to investigate political rivals. Sessions responded in a rare public statement that he would continue to serve, quote, with integrity. And Mueller is now looking into Trump's business activities in Russia prior to 2016. In particular, Mueller is questioning the timing of Trump's decision to run and why a deal for Trump Tower in Moscow fell through. He is also investigating material in the Steele dossier, looking into contact between WikiLeaks and Trump and how Trump appeared to know about hacked Democratic emails. ICE arrested more than 150 suspected undocumented immigrants in the Bay Area two days after Oakland's mayor warned her constituents that raids were coming. ICE's deputy director called her actions reckless and claimed close to 1,000, quote, criminal aliens and safety threats remained at large. And EPA head Scott Pruitt said he would fly coach after an uproar over his lavish spending habits. Pruitt claims he has faced unprecedented threats. Those threats reportedly include fellow passengers telling him that he is making the EPA into a disaster. Day 407, March 2nd. The Senate Intelligence Committee said the Republicans in the House Intelligence Committee leaked private text messages between the Senate panel's top Democrat and a Russian-connected lawyer. In a bipartisan rebuke, Richard Burr and Mark Warner demanded an emergency meeting with Paul Ryan, complaining about the conduct of House Intelligence Chair Devin Nunes. Those text messages were displayed on Fox News. They represented an attempt by Warner to reach out and question Christopher Steele, who compiled an infamous dossier on Trump. Ben Carson announced he is, quote, attempting to cancel a $31,000 furniture order one day after it was revealed in a whistleblower suit that he grossly exceeded HUD's redecoration budget, while the department was planning on slashing all services. And Trump said he will impose stiff tariffs on imports of steel and aluminium, sending the Dow down 500 points and raising the prospect of a global trade war. Trump says he will impose tariffs of 25% on steel and 10% on aluminium on all nations. The Commerce Department had concluded the actions amounted to a national security threat. 
and Vladimir Putin today bragged Russia has a new missile that can evade American defenses. It is unclear if the weapon exists or not. And Jared Kushner's family real estate business received a total of $509 million in loans from lenders shortly after they met with Kushner at the White House. Apollo Global Management and Citigroup had multiple meetings with Kushner at the White House. Kushner companies received $184 million in loans from Apollo, triple Apollo's average loan size, and $325 million from Citigroup. The loans prop up a disastrous investment Kushner made in a Manhattan real estate property at 666 Fifth Avenue. Day 408, March 3rd. The White House is reportedly preparing to replace H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor as early as next month. Chief of Staff John Kelly and Defense Secretary James Mattis want McMaster out. McMaster has angered Trump by not acceding to his whims. And Carl Icahn, a major Trump backer, sold 1 million shares of profit in steel and metals interests just one week before Trump announced his tariffs. Senator Orrin Hatch pressed Ryan Zinke to shrink the Bears Ears National Park so oil and gas exploration could be allowed on what is considered sacred land of the native tribes there. Bears Ears was subsequently reduced to conform to a map that Hatch had provided. The FBI is now investigating Ivanka Trump's role in the financing of the Trump Hotel and Tower in Vancouver. The Trump Organization received more than $5 million in royalties. That hotel was financed using money from Malaysia. In Canada, China, and the EU say they will respond to Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminium with tariffs of their own that could lead to billions of dollars in export losses. The countries are targeting goods like Kentucky bourbon, blue jeans, and Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Trump blithely said trade wars are good and easy to win. And a forged Nobel nomination was discovered. Someone falsely nominated Donald Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize twice. Day 409, March 4th. Robert Mueller is speeding up his inquiry with a new look at if the United Arab Emirates held unusual sway in the White House. A little-known power broker, George Nader, is under investigations for attempts by the Emiratis to buy political influence. The Emirates directed money to Trump's campaign. Money from multiple countries has flowed through Trump's White House. And in a related story, Jared Kushner's ties to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates are also being scrutinized. Qatar was approached by the Kushners to invest in a badly underwater property and refused. One month later, Kushner supported Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who are Qatar's neighbors, in a Middle East blockade of Qatar. Kushner also reportedly undermined Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's efforts to end the impasse. Qatar has a major American Air Force staging area in country. And Trump has applauded Chinese President Xi Jinping's bid to hold on to power indefinitely in a speech to Republican donors. Trump said, quote, he's now president for life president for life and he's great and look he was able to do that i think it's great maybe we'll give that a shot someday audio of that speech was leaked to cnn and stormy daniels threatened to cancel her non-disclosure agreement just 12 days before the election trump's attorney hit michael cohen had failed to pay her a promised one hundred and thirty thousand dollars the payment arrived 10 days later because the issuing bank flagged that transaction as suspicious and reported it to the treasury department day 410 march 5th Former Trump aide Sam Nunberg has been subpoenaed to appear in front of a federal grand jury. Nunberg is refusing to comply. In a statement, Nunberg said Donald Trump won this election on his own. He campaigned his ass off and there is nobody who hates him more than me. The subpoena requests information about Hope Hicks, Stephen Bannon, Michael Cohen, Corey Lewandowski, and Roger Stone. Nunberg defiantly said, let Mueller arrest me. In further statements to cable news outlets, he alleged that Mueller has something on Trump. And Paul Ryan criticized Trump's proposed tariffs, saying they could lead to a trade war. We are extremely worried about the consequences of his trade war and urging the White House to not advance with this plan. 
Trump has shown no signs of backing down, spending the weekend on Twitter defending the tariffs and threatening two of the United States' closest trading partners, saying the tariffs would only come off Canada and Mexico if a new and, quote, fair multilateral trade pact was signed. Workers removed the Trump name from the only Trump-branded hotel in Latin America on Monday after the majority owner of Trump Panama won a legal battle. The hotel had sued the Trump organization to get out of a marketing and ownership deal. And a Belarusian sex worker with close ties to a powerful Russian oligarch claims she has more than 16 hours of audio recordings that could help shed light on Russian meddling in the United States elections. Anastasia Vakevich's claim, which comes after she was jailed in Thailand, would be easy to dismiss if not for the fact that she's previously supplied deeply damaging information about Russian oligarchs to the media. She's seeking asylum in the USA, claiming she faces reprisals in Russia. And according to a lengthy piece by Jane Meyer in The New Yorker, Russia asked Trump not to hire Mitt Romney as Secretary of State. Russians had asked for someone who would ease sanctions. These revelations came from ex-MI6 spy Steele, who has been attacked by Republicans. Day 411, March 6th. In a seeming breakthrough, North Korea has agreed to suspend nuclear development and hold talks with South Korea. North Korea has also agreed to meet with the USA in April in the demilitarized zone to discuss the possible end of North Korea's nuclear program. And Kellyanne Conway was found to have violated the Hatch Act in electioneering for Roy Moore of Alabama. The White House has been asked to discipline her, which has said it will decline to do. Lawyer Michael Cohen received leaked witness testimony from within the House Intelligence Committee. Cohen is alleged to have received inside info on the Steele dossier. That dossier alleged that Cohen met with Kremlin officials, which he denies. Robert Mueller has asked for more information about that incident. And Trump is to allow case-by-case importation of elephant tusks and ivory. The move, apparently to simply overturn an Obama-era restriction, comes after Trump's once-called trophy hunting, quote, a horror show. Illegal poaching has driven elephants in Africa to near extinction. Day 412, March 7th. Gary Cohn has resigned as Trump's top economic advisor. Cohn, long viewed as one of the more moderate advisors in Trump's cabinet, clashed with his boss over tariffs on foreign steel and aluminium, believing the move to be deeply damaging. Cohn had only recently interviewed for the chief of staff position. The suggestion that he would resign last August sent the stock market tumbling. And the Department of Justice has sued the state of California over its sanctuary city laws, a stark new escalation of the tactics over the immigration debate. The Department of Justice is asking a judge to find the laws unconstitutional, saying they prevent ICE from doing its job. Governor Jerry Brown, named in the suit, called it a political stunt. And porn actress Stormy Daniels sued Trump, calling the, quote, hush agreement between them null and void because Trump did not sign it. The suit came days after Trump's lawyer Cohen attempted to force Daniels into binding arbitration to prevent her from speaking out about her affair with Trump. And Nudberg proved to be right about one thing. Trump's approval ratings are now down to around 30%. Republican pollsters are worried that several high-profile races coming up in special elections could prove disastrous. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94, we're in conversation with author Frances Fitzgerald about her latest book, The Evangelicals. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author discussed the birth and growth of the religious right in America, how that has contributed to today's political climate, and where religion in this country is headed. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. To ask a Thomas Road member, what brought you to Lynchburg, or how did you find this house, was to hear, God brought me here, or God found this house for us. Only afterward would come some mention of the family's desire for a warmer climate or the intervention of a real estate agent. I thought of it as a moonchild quality until I realized that Thomas Road people always seemed to know what God wanted, 
at least in retrospect. God, they would say, had answered their prayers about living in a warmer climate, but he had not given them the new house they wanted because he was teaching them a lesson they needed to learn. As for the future, they were sure that God had a plan for them, and while they sometimes couldn't say what it was, they often had leadings or intuitions cultivated in prayer. Falwell, for example, wrote that he decided to start the Thomas Road Church because after prayer he felt, quote, a growing conviction that God was pleased I had chosen to stay in Lynchburg, unquote. For Thomas Road people, nothing happened by chance or because of simple human volition. There was a purpose even behind apparent accidents, and those who prayed and studied their Bible could potentially figure it out. In a 1987 study of a northern fundamentalist church, Ammerman wrote that the church provided believers with, quote, an orderly, well-mapped territory in the midst of an uncharted, chaotic modern wilderness, end quote. In the outside world, she wrote, the rules are subjective, imperfect, and always changing. Inside, God provides a plan that is clear, objective, and timeless. There are clear rules and understandable answers for all of life's questions. Certainly, Thomas Road people all seemed to know what God wanted for the rest of society. As outsiders soon discovered, there was no point in talking to more than one on a topic of political or social interest because there was only one right answer to every question, and any church member could give it to you as well as any of the pastors unless they happened to lack the specific information. Oh, I'm totally against the ERA, Nancy James told me during a visit I paid to her house when, for the purposes of discussion, I recited some of the pro-ERA arguments she listened seriously and apologized for being so ill-informed on the subject. I thought at the time that the arguments had made some impression on her, but later, as I was leaving, she came out after me to apologize again and to say, quote, I will find out more about the ERA. I know I'm against it. I'm just not sure exactly why, End quote. For Thomas Road people, education, in the broad sense of the word, was not a moral or intellectual quest that involved struggle or uncertainty. It was simply the process of learning the right answers. The idea that individuals should collect evidence and decide for themselves was out of the question. Once Falwell told his congregation that to read anything but the Bible and certain prescribed works of interpretation was at best a waste of time. And we're back on I-94. You're listening to Lumpen Radio here in Chicago. We are in conversation today with Frances Fitzgerald. She is the author of The Evangelicals. And you just heard a passage from midway through the book about Jerry Falwell. And we talked at the beginning of the show, uh, Ms. Fitzgerald was out in uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee, and uh, actually Virginia. met Jerry, excuse me, Virginia, Virginia and met, uh, I always think of the bourbon before I think of the uh, the church. That's my fault. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. Uh she met him, and uh, this kind of sparked uh, a, a well, I got 40 years, I guess, uh, researching and writing about the evangelical movement culminating in this book. Um, Mike has a couple questions. Before we go any further, though, I do, as always, want to thank, first of all, International Anthem. Nick Mazarell and Tamika Reed provide the backing music. And our reader, of course, every week is Shanna Van Volt, who takes whatever we can throw at her. Thank you, Shanna. Mike. So that, that reading we just heard from um, Francis's book where she had been visiting members of Falwell's Thomas Road Church in the in the 80s, I think that was, Francis? Yeah, it was in 1980. Mm-hmm. That, that portrayal, that scene that you painted was, I think, kind of the stereotypical image I had in my head of, of an evangelical, you know, that all-encompassing stereotype that doesn't really exist or isn't, isn't the whole truth. Um, and your book breaks that down very, 
very much in depth. And a couple chapters after what we just read, there's there's a chapter titled "The Thinkers of the Christian Right," and it and it gets uh, into the history of, of some of the intellectual towers, I guess you could say, behind um, some of the Christian right thinkers of today or or yesteryear. Um, can you talk about the the two main intellectuals you discussed in that chapter, and uh, um, and yeah, just your sure. experience? Um, one one of them was extremely well known um, in his time. This, this is um, Francis Schaeffer, and um, he. Um, I mean, I think anybody between fifty and seventy right now would um, evangelical would would know his name, whereas you know outsiders do, don't. Yeah, I sure um, didn't. But. Uh, he was um, he was uh, uh, he began as a fundamentalist and uh, Falwell, by the way, as a fundamentalist, and that's that's the sort of one sort of far end of, of the evangelical world. But um, uh, he um, uh, evolved when he went to Europe and set up a, a house there, um, which became independent of of his fundamentalist uh, uh, church association, and. Um, he started to try and evangelize um, young um, Europeans and Americans who came through, um, and he realized that that uh, um, they weren't attracted uh, so much to, to to the Bible reading because they never had uh, read the Bible. They never was not in their in their ken at all. Um, the sort of first generation of of, um, of of people who were unchurched, and um, uh, so he. Um, um, began to study uh, European art and uh, um, uh, literature and so forth, and and began to lecture on on um, um, uh, all kinds of uh, of subjects from the Italian Renaissance to uh, um, to modernist movement um, uh, and uh, you know Sartre and Camus and so on. Um, I, uh, whether he actually read any of these things yeah. is not clear. He he yeah. did have something of an eye for, for p- painting, but um, uh, um, he 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 uh, read wrote a number of books on these scores and um, um, and he um, thanks to his son um, made uh, one film which which is this, was sort of an answer to uh, Sir Kenneth Clark's great great. Um, Series called Civilization, and it um, it was entirely from a um, sort of Calvinist point of view. Um, but um, uh, how should we he, then live? Is was the title? That's right. Um, and um, uh, it it um, uh, he always ends somehow by being angry. <laughs> you know, the the the. the, um, the he may he may go through some appreciation of of um, um, Brunelleschi or or some Italian Renaissance figure, um, but then then towards the end um, he sort of gets comes up to date again and and gets angry about the current situation, um, and so his, his fundamentalist um, uh, period was n- never quite lost. Um, but uh, he became a lecturer in, in colleges and around the United States, and these films um, made him very famous. Particularly, the I think the second one, um, which was uh, about um, abortion, and um, uh, before that, um, 
evangelicals, um, this, this came out, what, in the early 80s, mm-hmm. um, 70, maybe 79. Um, it, before that, evangelicals were really, like other Protestants, um, uh, uh, not entirely against abortion. And they, 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 um, they, um, uh, their view was that uh, you shouldn't just um, oh, have sort of abortion on demand, but, but that um, you ought to consider not just the life of the mother, but the, but the, um, but the mother's own um, uh, personal views, uh, her, her um, you know, it, was this going to be a good experience for her? Um, would she be able to afford the baby? Would, you know, all, all those kinds of things. Um, and um, uh, this, this film, which was done with um, a, a, a great um, a pediatrician, pediatrician, pediatric surgeon um, uh, who was one of the first um, evangelical sort of anti-abortion people um, became, was um, uh, at first not um, uh, not even allowed at certain um, evangelical colleges and then gradually um, sort of became more and more important and I think um, was the major thing in turning evangelicals against abortion and seeing abortion as murder I mean, that, that um, sort of taking the Catholic view of, of abortion. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.